We see a lot of police in games, and we see a lot of doctors in games, but we don't really see a huge amount of firefighters. There are but a few games that cover the role, with one of the first fully-fledged commercial titles being exclusive to the Japanese and European regions. That game is The Firemen on the SNES. The Firemen was created by Human Entertainment and released in 1994. The game's plot takes place in the distant future, the year 2010. Technology has advanced only slightly, and a basic firefighting squad is still the standard way of handling fires. On the evening of a Christmas party being held for staff at a chemical development company known as Microtech and not in the Nakatomi Plaza, a fire has broken out and is spreading rapidly across the building. With no other option for a safe mission to be carried out, it's up to emergency services to extinguish the fire at any cost and rescue stranded civilians lost throughout the complex. Due to the abundant supply of chemicals, the fire has spread at an alarming rate across the high-rise. The city's D-Sector Fire Brigade has dispatched a unit to the scene, formed of Pete, Daniel, Max, Walter, and Winona. After arriving on the scene, the team learns of a large supply of the highly combustible chemical MDL located within the building's basement. The unit splits up in order to obtain the MDL as quickly as possible, in hopes of delivering it to the roof in order to blow up a water tank which should help to extinguish the blaze, a plan that will definitely work. The player takes control of the highly commended Pete Gray, the captain of the five-member unit, and his second-in-command, Daniel McLean. Clean. That was not even on purpose. Daniel is able to take care of himself, making use of his fire axe and lighter load to operate control panels and open doors throughout the duo's ascent. Pete has a water hose at his disposal with an infinitely abundant supply of water. He's able to use this high-powered hose to fire water in any direction around him with great distance, while also using it to extinguish flames that might be rising from below him. Pete is also able to strafe with his hose to efficiently extinguish flames. The team can use grenades, which release water within a moderate blast radius, though these are limited and must be found throughout the building. By finding civilians, Pete is able to restore a portion of his health, and at the end of each stage, the two must take out an extremely dangerous flame in the form of a boss battle. With the nature of the work carried out in the building, hazards come in many shapes and sizes. Ceilings which fall in, robots which have been fully engulfed in flames, or flames with aggressive habits and patterns will also become more common as the duo progress. The game is made up of stages with a time limit, and while the player has unlimited ammunition, lives are limited to only three continues. Daniel is fully controlled by the game's AI, and being invincible is a much-needed partner as progress is made. However, as the team progresses further, backdraft becomes more and more common, and thus opening doors could result in huge explosions, which are really annoying. While the game's setting is in New York, featuring a firefighting team of Americans, the game never saw release in America. It did receive a full translation and was ultimately localized for Europe, featuring English, French, and German languages. It's easy to assume that the game's region-locked status comes from the theme of firefighters being considered uninteresting to an American audience. However, Ignition Factor from Jaleco did receive a release in the States. While an alleged prototype for a US version of the game set to be released surfaced online, one of the owners of a prototype cart, Evan G, performed research only to come to the conclusion that the prototypes are likely only early PAL localizations which had not been script-checked yet. Coverage of the title within America can be found in Electronic Gaming Monthly issues of August and September in 1994, where it was first covered in a small segment on Japanese games, and then later receiving a double-page spread, still not stating any plans for localization. The series proved popular enough within the Japanese market that a sequel was created for the PlayStation, this time being published only within Japan. The game featured a two-player option and added voice acting, but it's considered to be a step backwards for the game's action. Human Entertainment closed its doors at the end of the 90s, taking a number of franchises with it. The company's most notable series, Fire Pro Wrestling, continued on beyond the development house's demise with Spike, and the only other title which had much of an impact in the West was Clock Tower. But with the progression of the survival horror genre at the time, not many people took much notice of its disappearance. The Fireman is a set of two games which remained within obscurity and fizzled out with human entertainment. We have previously spoken about Enix on Region Locked. 
In their history of games, a slew of titles were released that would be hit or miss with a lot of the gaming audience. Their attempts to capitalize on their strong stability, developing RPGs, made the company look like a one-trick pony. So when a developer approached the publisher showing off a game that was nothing like they had seen before, it's possible that their reaction was to use the title as a way of broadening their market. Little did they know that this would be one of the last times the company was credited as Enix alone, as soon after, the company merged with Squaresoft to form Square Enix. Today, we're talking about Super Galdelic Hour. Super Galdelic Hour is an extremely bizarre game released in 2001 and developed by X-Rays, a company who had only worked on two other titles prior to Galdelic Hour's conception, which were also Japan exclusives. The title is unsurprisingly pushed towards the older male audience, with the game concentrating heavily on the character's busts and backsides. The game's camera angles and 3D models were brought up negatively in many reviews, stating that they give the game a creepy Uncanny Valley feel. The Uncanny Valley is an issue with computer-generated graphics or robots in which attempts to form more realistic visuals can come across as creepy or unnatural. The game's story follows stuffed animals that were transformed into busty women after a radio wave was discovered and used on them. Not making it up, guys. These are Toko the Rabbit, Nico the cat, Kuma the bear, and Coco the fox. These characters are known as cuties, an obvious play on the English word for cuties. From a spacecraft being used as a broadcasting station, a scientist created his own guerrilla television channel called Cuties Jack TV. I think we all know what the Jack means. The game takes place in a fictional game show played on this station. The game's manual poses a number of interesting questions towards the game's plot, without actually answering many of them. These include what the game's name actually means, as well as the size of the characters. With that said, it does tell us that the characters defecate by excreting pachinko-sized balls that smell of raspberries. The show is made up of various competitive skits which are played in the form of different minigames. These are typically games built around erotic themes or angled in a way that are simply used for titillation. These games include hip sumo wrestling, two characters compete to knock their opponent off a floating platform into a pool of water by thrusting their backsides against one another, I know me and Danny play that all the time, quick draw a pie, a game similar to Simon Says, the player must hit the action button when the word go appears on screen, the quickest player wins, skipping rope, a simple jump rope game in which the player presses a button to jump, well-timed jumps provide the bonus of weird camera angles, Go-Go Rolling, rotate the left analog stick in a clockwise or anti-clockwise direction to reach the top or the bottom of the screen. Eccentric Puncture, a boxing game in which the girls wear large inflatable boxing gloves and beat each other up. This game is notably perceived as a very negative element of the game, as the girls are shown visibly beaten after the game finishes. There are also more games, but... <laughs> you get the idea. Only a few games are available from the game start, while others can be unlocked by progressing through the single-player mode. By performing well, you'll be rewarded with money to be spent on customization items for the various characters. With each run-through of the single-player mode, more sponsors will be obtained, which will help increment the volume of money earned with each completion. While Super Galdelic Hour is a very, very peculiar game, it was actually received pretty well over in Japan. Many people cited that it was a great way of trying to branch the PlayStation 2 console out into new directions, allowing for creativity with bizarre results to be enjoyed. The game's lack of localization shouldn't be too hard to understand. The PlayStation 2 at the time of this game's release was only two years old, and it's highly likely that Enix considered the game to be of more interest to the Japanese market. The sexual themes and odd story would have likely been a point of contention in the US. Many companies felt that the PlayStation audience was better known for its purchasing of titles with more serious tones. To top that off, mini-game compilations were often considered to be extremely passable. In an article about what was being played in Japan at the time, the game was brought up on IGN with much disdain, demonstrating the typical Western mentality with these sorts of releases. Please note that we aren't stating that this is a positive or negative response. The game had very little following online after its release, and in Japan is still considered to be 
pretty forgettable. This is with the exception of one cosplayer, Omi Gibson, who went all out with her outfit depicting the game's lead character, Toko, in 2011. And that's all for today. <laughs> Thank God. We all know Disney and its many franchises, unless you've been living under a rock. Almost no other animation studio was as successful as Disney when it came to the 16-bit era of video games. Disney made lots of games that people still consider to be the best of the generation, and that's why finding that Disney had another platformer that was only released in Japan, it's curious to see why it was never brought over to America. Today, we'll be looking at Mickey no Tokyo Disneyland Balkan which translates to Mickey's Great Adventure in Tokyo Disneyland. Mickey no Tokyo was released in 1994 by Tomy for the SNES and stars the Disney icon Mickey Mouse. It's a typical action platformer, as was standard for Disney in the 90s, but with an interesting twist. To navigate the stage, Mickey has a gas tank on his back, which he uses to inflate balloons. This allows him to float upwards or release gas all at once to boost in any direction. Mickey also carries a water tank, allowing him to throw water balloons or place them on the ground as a platform to walk on. They can also be used to perform a jump boost. Mickey can only attack above him by releasing his deadly gas. <laughs> balloons. The size of the balloon can be changed by holding in the button longer, just like in real life, changing how far the attack will go or how high Mickey can fly. The title makes use of water balloons in unique puzzle areas, such as creating a string of them that must be placed to create a platform to help pass over large holes. This basically sums up the game's mechanics, and sadly, there isn't much else to it. The balloon attack that Mickey uses was also featured in an earlier game, Mickey Mouse 3 Balloon Dreams. Balloon Dreams was kind of exclusive to Japan as a Mickey Mouse game, but in the US exclusive release, he was replaced with a clown. This title was published as Kid Clown in Nightmare World. The game's plot contains many Disney characters, as you would expect. Mickey Mouse has traveled to Tokyo Disneyland with his friends in order to prepare for the park's latest opening. But upon his arrival, Minnie reveals that his friends have all been kidnapped by Pete, who's taken over the park. Mickey must pass through the various iconic attractions of the park to take down Pete whilst also rescuing his friends. Each stage is set in a different part of the park with its own themed enemies, a variety of enemies that range from ghosts to robots, bees, and mimic chests. At the end of each stage, the player must battle Pete in a variety of forms, reminiscent of Dr. Robotnik and his robots. There are a total of six friends that need to be rescued throughout the game, Daisy, Donald, Scrooge, Goofy, Pluto, and everyone's favorite, Elvira. While this means the game isn't particularly long, it still can be challenging. There are three difficulty settings, and even on the easiest mode, it still requires a decent amount of skill to progress. The changes between these settings include the amount of obstacles that will be put in your way, as well as how much life Mickey has. Easy mode gives you eight hit points, normal mode gives you five, and hard mode only gives you three. The game was likely made to boost interest in Disney's new Tokyo theme park. The lack of release outside of the region comes due to licensing issues, with Capcom having held the rights to Disney games released in the US market on Nintendo platforms. Mickey Mouse 3, or Kid Clown in the US, had a prototype English translation created by Kemco at the time of its release. The reason for its cancellation was because of this licensing problem, and as a result, it would only make sense that Mickey no Tokyo would suffer the same fate. Sadly, while Mickey Mouse 3 sort of did get a release with Kemco replacing Mickey Mouse with an original character, the same cannot be said for Tomy's SNES title. When it comes to gunplay action, many in the games industry will look to movies. Something we often see games attempting to replicate is the pure action of dual wielding some guns. Whilst many games do have options for dual wielding pistols, it's never truly replicated with the same sort of action capable within film and television. This is due to aim typically being dedicated to a single reticule on screen, meaning that you're effectively firing two guns into the same location and not in different directions at different targets. One on-rails co-op shooter title that attempted to change this was Twin Caliber. 
Twin Caliber released exclusively in Europe in 2002 for the PlayStation 2 by Rage Software, a now bankrupt British team that hailed from the city of Liverpool. The game features two-player cooperative gameplay, although a single-player option is available which will provide the player with an AI-controlled partner. The title plays like most arcade-era on-rails shooters, and features a total of 26 stages. It attempted to combine the world of games and movies, featuring cinematic camera positions with gameplay built entirely around the mechanic of operating two guns at the same time. With the player walking through stages autonomously, it gives the player the ability to concentrate on making use of both of the character's weapons. The game lets the player dual wield through both analog sticks, with both sticks controlling the player's respective arms with full 360 degrees of rotation. A gun's line of sight is pointed out for the weapon to help make aiming slightly less asinine, an issue that comes from the game's camera often shifting around to suit the game's predetermined path and scenarios. Due to the need for multitasking, the game requires a lot of practice to have the player be able to concentrate and consistently hit their mark in two different locations. Although this mechanic is the unique aspect to the work, it can also be disabled to map both weapons to the right stick alone. Special weapon ammo is limited, though through the use of checkpoints can be restocked as well as the player's health being refilled. While friendly fire is also considered to be the true way in which the game should be played, it can be disabled. Boss fights often require the player to shoot at two areas simultaneously, causing issues for players opting to have both guns tied to the same control mechanism. It also causes a requirement of learning to adapt to this new form of gameplay. The manner in which boss fights must be executed is often left fairly ambiguous, or in some cases, hidden through misleading cues. The game's plot follows John T. Fortman, a sheriff caught up in the middle of a mutant apocalypse. After a mysterious young woman turned up in the small town of Sweet Liberty, rumors began to spread of a sinister cult developing. It took a month before all hell broke loose, and people began to mutate. With his fellow officers of the law out of commission, Fortman finds a partner in an unlikely and cliché turn of events. With nobody to assist in taking out the creatures, he turns to another survivor within the prison's high-security wing, Valdez, an inmate on death row. The two fight their way through the town, killing hundreds as they go. The game's lack of localization in America comes from the developer's lack of experience in publishing games, though not in the way that is usually the case with most region-locked titles. Rage Software filed for bankruptcy a year after Twin Caliber's launch within PAL territories, after the company sought to expand its reach beyond just a development studio and become a publisher too. The team had little success as it took on this new venture, with many of the titles released being slated within reviews and selling well below expectations. The largest of disappointments for the team likely came from their brand deal with the professional soccer player David Beckham. With Twin Caliber being one of their final releases before closure, it's of course not surprising to hear that efforts to take the title overseas would have been fruitless. At the time of its closure, Rage Software was considered to be one of the oldest game developers studios within the UK, with offices spread across six cities. If the team did manage to take Twin Caliber to the United States, it would have likely been of little salvation, as the game was critically panned and also only saw a limited run within the company's home country. Bomberman, a series that has been around since the early days of gaming. With that, history is a large catalogue of games, ranging from the expected to the unexpected. From internationally recognized classics to region-locked obscurities, as with most recognized characters in the gaming world, it should come as absolutely no surprise to see Bomberman pull out the sweatbands and take on the sports genre in Bomberman Hardball. Bomberman Hardball was released in Japan as Bomberman Battles in 2004, before a PAL version was released a year later. While most Bomberman games take the form of a competitive top-down action game, Hudson decided to take the series into a different form of competition. Split up into four different games, the title includes three different sports as well as the traditional battle mode as seen in the standard Bomberman games. Another mode is also present which provides the most interesting element to the game, called Living Mode. Living Mode shows the White Bomber in his house. 
The house contains a small variety of things to explore. Through the use of a remote, the player can watch demos from different game modes played by only the game's CPU players. It's also possible to select an option to customize the player's character, their name, and purchase new outfits from a gumball machine with coins earned through the other game modes. The game modes are pretty much what you would expect. Baseball has two modes, a single match or a pennant race, with the player entering a league match against five CPU players over the course of 30 games. With the bulk of the game being controlled automatically, it is even possible to set the fielding to automatic. The game is mainly built around correctly timed button presses. Golf can be played in exhibition mode or tournament modes with 18 different holes. If you've ever played a golf game before, the game's mechanics are obvious. A power bar determines the shot's strength, and then stopping the bar at its stationary marker will determine accuracy. It's a golf game, you know? The tennis mode allows for exhibition matches and tournaments across both doubles and singles on grass, hard and clay courts. Again, this is merely a generic tennis game with terrible physics. The game's main attraction is in its battle mode, the main gameplay of most other Bomberman releases. It follows the typical Bomberman formula of a grid-based competitive action match in which players attempt to blow each other up with bombs. The modes included are the classic deathmatch battles, star battles in which the player must collect the most stars, crown battle where the players hunt down a crown on the stage to win, and points battle in which the player respawns upon death and points are awarded for each frag. Bomberman Hardball released with an English translation in PAL territories prior to the release of the Bomberman Land titles. As a result, several character names differ from other games within the series. Cheerful White is referred to as the Ivory Bomber, Cool Black is named Star Bomber, Bookworm Green is called Jade Bomber, and Kid Blue is known as Blue Bomber. <laughs> Real original. Ubisoft, the game's publisher, made a press release to announce the game's launch alongside Bomberman DS. The statement from January 2005 announces the company's intentions to publish and distribute Bomberman DS for the Nintendo DS in Europe and North America, and Bomberman Hardball for Sony's PlayStation 2 throughout Europe. This reveals that at the time of the game's announcement for international release, there were no intentions of the game being taken to the United States. An anomaly with this Bomberman release is the lack of Konami distribution. Ubisoft had likely signed an agreement with Hudson to publish titles only a short period before Konami's acquisition of Hudson in April of 2005, only three months before Hardball's release. Bomberman's choice to release outside of Japan, only in Europe, is an oddity, with much of the game's materials and marketing focused on the baseball element of the title, a sport primarily played by American audiences. The run-and-gun platformer has always had a fairly loyal following, particularly with titles like Metal Slug or even Gunstar Heroes. Today, we're going to take a look at a game that fits this genre, found in an unexpected place by an unexpected team. That game is Rapid Reload for the original PlayStation. Released in 1995 in Europe and in Japan as Gunner's Heaven, Rapid Reload was created by the team at Media Vision, a company primarily known for their work on the Wild Arms series of games. The player is able to choose between one of two playable characters, Axel or Ruka. Gameplay is typical of run and gun, but with the addition of being able to switch between four different weapons. The duo have a unique set of four weapons each, meaning that the game plays differently depending on character choice. Attacks can be shot in eight directions, with some weapons providing homing attacks against enemies, relieving the stress of having to actually aim. The player can also attack with throws, and can zip around stages with the use of a grappling hook. However, Rapid Reload's unique mechanic comes in its points system, designed to bolster a player's shots. As more points are collected, a counter at the top of the screen increases, improving the power of shots. Temporary buffs can also be collected, which will push this counter to its limits, making the player capable of complete domination for an extremely brief period of time. As time goes on, the counter will decrease, encouraging the player to kill more enemies to top it up again. This mechanic, though one of the game's only unique features, is heavily criticized by players due to the lack of balance that it brings to the game. 
At times, the player can have a huge excess of points, while at others, the counter can dwindle to zero due to long periods of no enemies appearing. Whilst fighting against a boss, however, the counter does freeze, allowing the player to continue using their stronger attacks against their foes. The game's plot follows Axel Sonics and Ruka Hetfield as they hunt down a legendary stone known as Valkyrie. The treasure hunters aren't alone in their search, as a terrorist group called the Pumpkinheads are also keen to get a hold of this treasure, so that they may use it for world domination. Very unique plot. The team must fight their way through a barrage of Pumpkinhead soldiers across several different locations in the world, taking out the captains of the organization as they go. Axel and Ruka have their own unique endings, encouraging the player to complete the game twice in order to see the results. Being the second title that MediaVision had ever created, it may be considered unfair to make comparisons of cloning. However, I'm sure that you yourself can see the game's resemblance to Sega's Gunstar Heroes, and you wouldn't be alone in that comparison, as many reviews gave the game low scores as a result, criticizing the lack of features compared to Sega's earlier release, such as simultaneous cooperative multiplayer. While the game received a PAL release for the PlayStation's launch, the game was left out of America due to an issue that we have already spoken about in a previous episode on a game called Little Ralph. Many 2D titles were skipped over for the Western market in favor of more futuristic 3D games. The game would have been unlikely to receive critical acclaim within the region, as proven by reviews of the game's other publications. Whilst many will consider the game to be visually appealing, at the time of release many saw the game as nothing particularly interesting compared to earlier SNES or Sega Genesis titles. For a new console looking to evolve the gaming market into a 3D space, Sony likely felt that Rapid Reload was simply too archaic to be able to release it as a new game on their latest system. It isn't rare to see the spin-off of a popular series fail to receive an international localization. The resulting games can often be something new and interesting, providing a fresh look at a series the fans already know and love. The Lost Planet series had three releases in the West, each being a third-person shooter in which the player must fight off aliens while inhabiting a planet known as EDN3, which is currently going through an ice age. Prior to the release of Lost Planet 3, Capcom released a Japan-exclusive title for the series which deviated from the typical style of the two previous titles. This entry into Lost Planet is called EX Troopers. EX Troopers was released in 2012 for both Nintendo 3DS and PlayStation 3. It was developed and published by Capcom with the help of Hexadrive for the PlayStation 3 release. Deviating dramatically from the presentation style that fans had known from Lost Planet, Capcom describes EX Troopers as having exhilarating manga-esque action, in contrast to the action or cinematic shooting presentation from the other entries in the series. The game plays similarly to previous Lost Planet titles, with gameplay seeing the player navigate through stages of extremely icy landscapes from a third-person perspective. The player can equip two weapons prior to each mission, typically a lighter weapon with high ammo capacity and a stronger weapon with limited ammunition. Each weapon's ammo will regenerate after a short cooldown. The player is also capable of boosting and dodging to allow more action-based combat. By utilizing both boosts and melee attacks combined with projectile attacks, the player must complete a variety of goals for missions. These range from defending or enabling points to just simply killing all the enemies within a stage. By completing missions, the player obtains experience to level up and improve their character as well as currency to help improve weapons and armor. These upgrades require that the player also has a number of materials as well, which are collected throughout missions or by speaking with various NPCs in the game's hub maps. Medals are also rewarded for each goal that has been achieved within a mission, with special VR missions having more goals than standard missions during the first run of the game. Medals can be spent to buy music tracks and costumes for the characters. Costumes can also be unlocked through the use of codes, allowing the player to unlock costumes with ties to various different manga and Capcom game series. The game's plot follows Bren, a candidate for the Neo Venus Construction Incorporated Academy Educational Facility located on EDN3. While being transported to the institution on a spacecraft, the transport fleet of new recruits is attacked by a number of unknown vital suit mechs. 
Bren is selected by educational instructor Walter Stingray in order to assist him in piloting a prototype vital suit loaded with a next-generation AI capable of operating with full automation. Bren, as the suit's new master, names the machine Kingera and works with Walter to bring the enemy units down. After successfully taking out the enemies, Bren and Walter have no choice but to make an emergency ejection from Gingira while entering the atmosphere of EDN-3. This is where Bren discovers the planet's harsh surroundings and encounters the alien race known as the Acrid. From a base of operations acting as a sort of school, the team take on missions and fight back against the Acrid. The reason for the game's lack of localization is of particular interest, as while Capcom had initially filed for a trademark on the name EX Troopers in 2011 for the US and European markets, when asked about the potential Western release, senior VP of Capcom, Christian Svensson, stated on Capcom's Ask Capcom forum, Guys, I have no news to share on that front right now. Sorry. Moments later, he also stated that EX Troopers isn't part of the LP series officially, thus the difference in name, nor are there plans to bring it westward at this time. It's possible that plans may have changed with a successful release on the Japanese market, but upon release, the 3DS version sold 17,000 copies and the PlayStation version only sold 8,700. These figures make the game the weakest debut sales for any game within the Lost Planet franchise, with the reasoning possibly being that the game was competing against the sales of Call of Duty Black Ops 2 which was released around the same time. The game has a very strong Japanese theme to it, with the game's style following a manga or anime aesthetic very closely. It's possible that Capcom believed that this change in direction for a series considered to be quite serious in the West would be unsuccessful. The game is quite dialogue heavy, with long cutscenes featuring full voice acting, meaning that the cost of localizing the game could outweigh the likelihood of strong sales. The European market is largely made up of games from developers that come from the region, developing titles that never leave their origin country. The reason for their lack of localization could be from a difference in language or a lack of appreciation for the source material outside of where it comes from. When it comes to licenses used for children's TV shows, and with kids games being a pretty small market for most consoles, there isn't much profit to be seen in international endeavors. With that said, today we'll be taking a look at a few titles within Blast Entertainment's lineup. The company originates from the United Kingdom and was only active for around three years. During that time, they were able to publish several adaptations of popular shows, gaining the rights to release games for a number of TV series that are popular with the UK's audience. Blast published only a small number of games before their demise, all covering a variety of different TV shows and movies, with each demonstrating a complete lack of passion for the material. While we don't like to express our opinions over the titles we cover, we are willing to state that their lineup is little more than shovelware looking to make a quick buck. In this episode, Daz and myself will be covering Little Britain the video game, Xena Warrior Princess, and Daz will be starting with Mr. Bean. Enjoy! The Mr. Bean game was released in 2008 for the PlayStation 2, two years after the launch of the PlayStation 3 in the Western market. Based on the character of Rowan Atkinson, the popular British comedian and actor, the game follows the cartoon version of his most internationally known role. Clearly a game designed for children, included is a very simple overview tutorial video of the game's extremely basic controls. The player must guide Mr. Bean through a series of simple stages, collecting items and obtaining a number of jigsaw pieces from chests. They're able to jump and attack with items that are picked up throughout each stage. Each weapon only works against certain enemies, and must be selected to suit each scenario. As the game was created for kids, level design is of a fairly basic nature, and designed to be anything but challenging. However, the game is extremely difficult due to the lack of polished controls. Springs have a bizarre delay on being activated, making traversal over large gaps painstakingly annoying. The reward for completion of each stage is a small clip of the original children's animated TV show which seems to have little reflection on the game's plot, besides that of the first shown to the player when starting the game. Also included are Whack-A-Mole and Jigsaw Puzzle minigames. Being the last game published by Blast, it was developed by Beyond Reality Games, located in our hometown of Norwich. Norwich. We're sorry. The company has changed in many ways, and is now known as Eyewear Designs. They now create a 
number of games for mobile platforms, as well as working as a consultancy service for the IT community. I will now pass you on to Greg for some Xena action. Xena Warrior Princess was released on the PlayStation 2 in 2006 and was developed by EM Studios. The game shouldn't be mistaken for other titles from the franchise that were released internationally several years earlier by other developers. Focusing on Xena, the game throws the players directly into the middle of the story, with no introduction to the events leading up to it. Ares, God of War, has captured Gabrielle and chained her in a cell which is slowly being filled with water. In order for Xena to rescue her companion, she must fight her way through Ares's castle before Gabrielle drowns. At any point during gameplay, the player can pause their progress in order to check on Gabrielle and see how far the water has risen as they progress through the game. The result of this aspect of the title is a hard time limit on the player to complete the game, limiting them to roughly an hour and a half of playtime before Gabrielle drowns. By collecting special items, it's possible to reverse time within the chamber and have the water level descend. The logic behind the item leaving all time outside of the chamber unaffected is never explained, but in order to collect them, the player must first traverse through various stages, defeating thugs and solving tedious puzzles. The player controls Xena, of course, and has a number of attacks at their disposal, Xena is capable of punching or drawing her sword to swing an attack. It is possible to target enemies to keep the camera drawn to them, or the player can attack from a distance by throwing Xena's signature chakran. The game's controls are anything but refined, with moves being mapped to bizarre button choices. Movement is extremely floaty and navigating the sages can be, quite frankly, a massive struggle. With the Xena Warrior Princess brand being one that has gained a large following around the world, it's a surprise to see such a respected character be granted such a poor title. Released in 2007 on the PlayStation 2, PSP, and Windows, Little Britain The Game is based on the comedy sketch show created by David Walliams and Matt Lucas. Rather than follow any cohesive plot, the title is a series of minigames featuring characters from the show. Each minigame is supposed to take the form of a sketch within the show. As with Mr. Bean, the reward for completing each game is a small clip taken from the original material. Each character is voiced by both Lucas and Williams, the original writers and actors featured in the show, who also assisted with the game's script. Tom Baker, famous for his portrayal as the fourth Doctor in Doctor Who, also lends his voice as the game's narrator, as he does with the series. These games are fairly simple, starting with Vicky Pollard's game, in which she must don a pink bikini and ride her roller skates to collect CDs in a park. Lou and Andy appear in a swimming pool, recreating the top-rated comedy sketch of all time from the show, as determined by a 2005 poll from Channel 4 in the UK. Andy must climb to the highest diving board to perform tricks behind Lou as he talks with a lifeguard. Marjorie's game sees her in a supermarket built like a maze, playing similar to a game of Pac-Man with a more limited view and enemies that are faster than the player. The goal is to eat as many cakes as possible. Letty must attack frogs in the form of a whack-a-mole minigame. Emily and Florence play a game of British football, or soccer for you Americans, with a really weird set of rules. Then comes a simple puzzle game clone of Puyo Puyo or Columns, which is supposed to be based on the characters of Maggie and Judy. And finally is Daffid's minigame, which has him riding his bike through a village as he collects copies of the Gay Times and must run over other homosexuals while avoiding obstacles. We noticed while playing this game how the addition of player input during the standard style of sketches from the show highlights the abhorrent nature of the situations that occur throughout the show. Many of the scenes featured have the player participate in negatively representing groups of people who are considered to be vulnerable to abuse. Having goals with positive reinforcement to negative actions highlights the issues of the game's adaptation. And while the original show uses these scenes to have people laugh at those acting out of line, the game does a poor job of discouraging this behavior. It's likely that the response from the industry is reflective of this portrayal of vulnerable people. Upon release, review scores were significantly low, with GameSpot giving the game 1.6 out of 10 based on 7 different reviews. Its game ranking score is only 16%, making it the second lowest rated game on the site after the notoriously awful Big Rigs Over the Road Racing. 
The reason for Blast Entertainment's catalogue of games never seeing international releases likely comes from a number of different issues. As each game released is based on a popular title, obtaining the rights to publish titles based on those franchises internationally would have posed an issue for the relatively small company. To add to that, with each game released being almost universally panned by critics, it's unlikely that the effort would have wielded much profit. Blast Entertainment was registered as having developer Andrew Payne as its director. His work for his primary company, Mastertronic, resulted in his obtaining of an OBE. In the United Kingdom, an OBE is awarded to those who provide significant contributions to the arts and sciences, or by providing significant public service work or charitable contributions. Andy Payne obtained his OBE from his work in the games industry. While the resulting products of Blast show a lack of quality, Payne's contribution to the trade organisation UKIE and the game's charity GamesAid should not be overlooked. His contributions outside of Blast Entertainment were of value. The evidence of Mastertronic's involvement in Blast Entertainment is scarce, with the company possibly attempting to distance themselves from the purposeful budget line of games. I hope you enjoyed being double teamed. We previously covered a region-locked title by Media Vision, called Rapid Reload. The company had a number of other games that were left outside of the US, including the company's first release. Considered to be pretty popular in its native country, the title even received a sequel. Today, we will take a look at both Crime Crackers and Crime Crackers 2. Out in the vast open nothingness of space, crime is always stirring up in the obsidian sky, almost as infinite as the universe itself. To combat such crime, an intergalactic organization known as the Galaxy Police work to put criminals in their place and protect the innocent. However, to help the police with situations that they simply can't handle, the Crime Crackers come in to save the day. Taking control of the team of crime fighters as they travel the stars in their giant pink dolphin spacecraft, the player will be introduced to some unique and interesting characters. Their captain, Amelia F. Alkinet, dreams of one day rising to the ranks of the Cosmo Guardians, another group of justice enforcers who roam the galaxy. She searches for her brother, who has gone missing. The game follows a first-person perspective, and in order to attack, the player must first enter a battle stance before shooting. The game lends itself more to the dungeon crawler RPG genre, primarily focusing on exploration. Weapons and armor can be collected throughout the adventure, as well as a variety of different items. The player takes control of three different characters at all times, and the character in the middle of the screen takes the lead. This means that they are the one to attack, as well as the one to receive damage. Some consider the game to be playable while not being in English, as there is no fan translation available. However, it may not be so easy for those who wish to complete the title. Whilst the game has its issues, such as repetitive dungeons and unpolished mechanics, it did help MediaVision continue to create more titles with Sony, making some games with wide success. They even went on to create a sequel, titled Crime Crackers 2. After Media Vision's attempt at an alternative RPG received a mixed response, they moved on to create Rapid Reload. With their dip into an alternative genre, they went back to their initial skills with RPGs, creating the now highly praised first title in the Wild Arms series. A year later, Crime Crackers saw a sequel, fixing many of the issues held by its predecessor and being generally a more polished game. Whilst a direct continuation, this time the player is put in control of an entirely new cast of characters. The Guppy team is led by Captain Saria Hasselberg, a 16-year-old girl who, while slightly naive, has a kind heart. Her aspirations are to be as successful in her endeavors as Amelia from the original game, whose team are now known throughout the galaxy as being top-tier bounty hunters. Saria is joined by Wendy Wilkinson, a blue-haired winged maid as well as Shiza Kalagusk, a powerful Kenpo specialist, and Mardok Hooper, the team's engineer and navigator. With them is John Michael Hasselberg, a droid who acts as a father figure to Saria, sharing her last name. John Michael is also capable of transforming into a more robust form. The crew expands as the plot goes on, providing the player with eight different units to take into battle, more than twice the figure in the first release. With a party of four, the game adds a restoration mechanic that heals fighters who aren't participating in a fight whilst moving around each stage. The player is also now able to look up and down, making aiming much more refined. 
Several items in the game make reference to earlier MediaVision games, including Moa Galt, a weapon named after the Fire Guardian from Wild Arms, and Saria's gun, titled Rapid Reload. The first Crime Crackers was a launch title for the PlayStation, and was hoped to cause a big impact with the Japanese market. It was not just an early title for Sony's console, but also, as previously mentioned, the first game created by a new studio. Made in partnership with Sony, MediaVision didn't see international success until two years later with the release of Wild Arms. Having been created in just four months, and having a very Japanese-heavy aesthetic, it's likely Sony felt that it wasn't worth localizing Crime Crackers when it was possible that it would have few sales during the early days of the PlayStation launch. With Crime Crackers 2 being a direct continuation from the first release, publishing this sequel in a region without any following of the series could have been seen as a risky strategy. Sequels which receive international localization are sometimes rebranded to appear as though they are the first of a series, but with the sequel's plot heavily involving the exploits of the team featured in the first game, this may not have been an easy solution. Their reasoning may also have been that, if the company believed the first release wouldn't sell for a variety of reasons, what chance would a sequel have? Cheese and crime crackers, all we need now is wine. The homebrew community is one which garners a lot of attention, particularly with constant demonstrations of how old hardware can still be utilized to create impressive digital art. A collaboration in Japan created titles which use the Famicom not just for gameplay, but also as a means of digital art. These games aren't officially licensed by Nintendo, as they were released well beyond the Famicom's life cycle. The collaboration's first release in 2016, which was little more than a cartridge form of their chiptune album, was 8-Bit Music Power. 8-Bit Music Power is, in effect, a chiptune album that uses the Famicom console to generate the music. While the cartridge features a number of minigames, these are not the game's main draw. The game was made in a collaboration between Columbus Circle, a hardware manufacturer in Japan, and artist Ricky Iwasaki. The musical pieces featured on the cartridge were created by a number of talents in Japan, with 11 tracks in total. Artists who worked on the project include Professor Sakamoto, Yuriko Kaino, and Tappy. Visualizations are included on the cartridge, with artwork that serves as a sort of screensaver whilst the album is left to play. The game saw wide success, reaching number three in the Japanese Amazon sales charts for pre-ordered games. The team revisited the game in 2017 in order to release a finalized version, called 8-Bit Music Power Final. This release increased the number of tracks on the cartridge from 11 to 18, while also refining several other elements. While it's hard to sum to dub these releases as video games, both Ricky and Columbus Circle created an interactive experience on the Famicom after their first album release was a success. Kira Kira Star Knight DX took the team's concept further, being both musically and visually impressive, but also featuring interactive gameplay elements. The game works like most standard infinite runners, with the player controlling a young girl with a side-scrolling view. The goal is to collect stars which enter the screen in a variety of different patterns. The player runs continuously and is able to jump in order to collect the stars. Patterns grow more and more complex as the game goes on. To be victorious in each stage, the goal is to obtain a certain number of stars before time runs out. The game's physics work like several classic games on the system, preventing the player from changing their jumping trajectory whilst in the air. This is the extent of gameplay for the title, making it pretty unsurprising to hear that the game's main focus was not on the creation of complex gameplay, but instead a demonstration of the artist's works graphically and audibly. The reason for the lack of release in the West with these titles likely stems from their actual purpose. Being more like art pieces rather than games, the market for an artist will be with those who already appreciate their creations. Ricky, the lead behind these games, as well as one of the musical composers and artists, is a recognized artist in the region, having worked on an extensive number of projects ranging from mobile phone games, music, and, uh, adult publications. Without a guaranteed market overseas, creating cartridges for what is essentially an art project would have likely been without much payoff. Versions of the cartridges would need to be created for each region that they are released in, increasing the costs of such a niche concept. 
Columbus Circle, who published the titles, create hardware which is exclusively sold in Japan. Their market is entirely within the region, and it's unlikely that they felt the niche releases would be worth their time to explore expanding their distribution to overseas. Platformer titles released around the turn of the millennium were no rare sight, with several of the most critically acclaimed games of the genre releasing towards the late 1990s. The next generation of platforms expanded their traditional audience, encompassing darker themes. One of the lesser-known games released back in 2001 was the PAL-exclusive Evil Twin Cyprian's Chronicles. Evil Twin was developed by In Utero and published by Ubisoft on the PlayStation 2 and Windows, as well as being published by Big Ben Interactive on the Sega Dreamcast. The game plays like any standard 3D platformer, with clear inspirations from the German Expressionism movement in film. It follows the story of a young orphan boy named Cyprian, starting out on his birthday, where he is joined by his friends Dave, Joey, Vince and Steve. Cyprian's reaction to the party is one of detachment and morosity, justified by his past. Cyprian's presence within the orphanage comes from his parents dying on his birthday, leaving him to feel alone in the world. After returning to his room in a state of depression, Cyprian is greeted by his teddy bear, Lenny, who has been given life through Cyprian's imagination. Becoming increasingly aggravated by the barrage of questions he is receiving, Cyprian becomes overwrought with dark, vehement thoughts, striking back at Lenny by reminding him that he is nothing but a toy and condemning him and his world underbed to oblivion. Little does Cyprian know, by giving into his sinister thoughts, a darkness has swept over the orphanage, causing Lenny to disappear while shadows emerge and take his friends. Regaining consciousness, Cyprian finds himself alone in the world of Underbed. Here he meets Wilbur, a friend of Lenny's. Wilbur explains that the world he is inhabiting didn't always appear this way. It was a world not dissimilar to Cyprian's before a wave swept it all away and a tower appeared known as Lauren Dareth. At this time, a being known as the Master took control of the world, and the people became powerless against his armies. The Master then manipulated the people of the world by erasing traces of the past and entrusting a key known as the Great Zippet to the citizens of Demi Island. In an attempt to take back control, Lenny sought out the key, but was arrested before he was able to complete his mission. The Master then split the key into four pieces and spread it across the world of Underbed. And now it's up to Cyprian to free Lenny by obtaining all four parts of the Great Zippet. He soon discovers that the islands that survived the Wave of Darkness are ruled over by evil incarnations of his real-world friends from the orphanage. As previously mentioned, the game plays like most standard third-person platformer titles, with the player able to maneuver and jump around the stage. To attack enemies, the player can make use of a slingshot. It is also possible to enter a first-person view, where the player is able to make more precise shots or activate switches. The world is filled with a variety of collectible items, including basic health pickups as well as items to fill up the player's super sip gauge. By filling this bar, it's possible to transform into Cyprian's imaginary superhero state, Super Sip a character that he created whilst playing with his friends in the real world. Super Sip is capable of firing long-range fireball attacks, causing more damage than his standard slingshot. While the game's first publication was on the PlayStation 2 in 2001, it was initially intended for release two years prior. This initial planned release was simply entitled Evil Twin, and before that the story was conceived as an animated series. Julie Salzman, the game's marketing manager, stated, to start with, Evil Twin was intended for television, with a series of animated films whose themes explored childhood fears in a harrowing and distorted atmosphere. Faced with the magnitude of the project and the technical skills involved, and thanks to the advice of a TV producer, we turned towards the game medium. Through a long stage of planning and creation, the game's Dreamcast publication came in 2002 and was one of the final games published on the platform. In early previews of the game found in Next Gen magazine, it was revealed that the title would boast special features in the Dreamcast release. This included downloadable costumes as well as four VMU minigames. While never making it to the final release, these minigames were published online after the fact by Omar Cornett, the developer of these minigames. 
He stated that due to complications with development, they were likely left out of the game's retail launch. The VMU games included Paper Attack, Swampy, Fat Rain, and Glucky Labby. Paper Attack is a simple arcade-style shooter. Swampy is a puzzle game in which the player must navigate a frog on a set of lily pads, touching each lily pad once and only once. Fat Rain requires the player to throw a ball at an enemy who is constantly vomiting food which must be caught. Oh, I get it. Fat Rain. And Glucky Labby is a labyrinth navigation game using a 3D view, though it was never finished. It's possible that complications in development led to delays, causing the team to fall back on their plans to release the title outside of the PAL markets. Due to delays, the Dreamcast release was handled by Big Ben Interactive, a firm known for being one of the last to publish titles for the system in Europe after the console was discontinued. Reviews praised the game's overall art direction and the musical compositions of Bertrand Elud. Ellerud, Ellerud, Bertrand Ellerud, 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 but it was slated for its poor controls. In Utero, a Canadian development studio only ever released a few games, with Evil Twin being their last one. It's possible that the long set of delays and poor sales sent the studio into a financial state that saw them closing their doors, thus making them unable to localize the game for an American market. The PlayStation brand has always had an element of experimentation at its foundation. With popular games that rely on a player's rhythm, the Parappa the Rapper series has been considered a highlight to the PlayStation consoles for many. The team behind the series, Nanao and Shah, made frequent attempts to push gaming into new directions, as was evidenced with their original PlayStation game, Vib Ribbon. Whilst Vib Ribbon was exclusively released in Japan and Europe, it later saw a digital release in the USA. However, a Japanese exclusive sequel to Vib Ribbon, which changed its experimental direction, was Vib Ripple. Released in 2004, Vib Ripple took the concepts of including your own music in games with Vib Ribbon and changed the concept to inject photographs into games instead. The player is put in control of Vibri, a vector-based rabbit featured in the game's predecessor. Each stage is made up of a photograph in the form of a trampoline, on which Vibri must bounce. Through well-timed button presses that match up with the game's music, Vibri jumps varying heights. Jumping in the correct areas of the photo will release items called Petter characters. Before the time runs out, Vibri must collect a number of these Petter characters in order to win. These characters range from dogs, to trees, or even ice cream cones. The location of Petter characters is hinted at by the shape, color, and size of icons displayed at the side of the screen. By using these hints, the player has to try to work out the location of items. When drawing close, the controller vibrates and a drumming sound can be heard. Vibri must also avoid enemies called Boonchies. Jumping into a Boonchi will reduce Vibri from a rabbit to a frog, then to a worm, and eventually killing him off entirely and resulting in a game over. By collecting Petter characters, Vibri is able to evolve beyond his rabbit state, becoming Super Vibri, a form that is capable of physically hitting Boonchies, which will freeze them in place. Whilst there are more characters to collect in a stage than is required to complete a level, collecting all of the characters can easily deplete the player's limited time. At the end of each stage, Vibri will present the player with new Petter characters, which are stored in an album to take a look at any time. The game contains a total of 60 photographs provided by default. Through the use of the PlayStation 2's USB ports, it's possible for the player to add their own stages to the game via a digital camera or mobile phone, which will be scaled to just 200 by 200 pixels in resolution. Photos can also be added through the console's online service. It's possible to save these photos to a memory card with 12 photos taking up roughly a single megabyte. The game's lack of localization likely comes from the game's experimental nature. Having created a number of titles which experimented with a variety of concepts for Sony in the past, it's possible that Sony didn't see wide commercial potential with the game. Hello, pull up a chair. Welcome to Relock Portal. <laughs> nice try. The game lends itself more to the the game lends itself more to the dungeon crawler RPG RPG, RPG genre. Prior to Galdelic Hours contracep contraception. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, God damn it. It's this game as well. Out. Ugh. Whoa, that came out. The game's plot follows Bren. I had a teacher called Bren. I know that's not interesting, but there you go. It's in there. Was Vib Ripple. Ooh. Was Vib Ripple. It's possible that Sony didn't see wide commercial potential with the game. EA Sports. With the game. It's possible that the long set of delays and poor sales sent the studio into a financial state that saw them closing their doors and thus making them unable to localize the game for American market. <laughs> That's a long sentence, okay. It's likely Sony felt that it wasn't worth localizing Crime Crackers when it was possible that it would have few sales during the early days of the PlayStation launch. Yes! Reviews praised the game's overall art direction and the musical compositions of Bertrand Ellerud. Bertrand Ellerud. Ellerud. Bertrand Ellerud. Bertrand Ellerud. Bertrand Ellerud. I don't know. Okay. That's all for today, but touch my bum and make it sure it's nice and moist. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for watching, and be sure to let us know your thoughts in the comments below. Did you manage to uh, play the game? <laughs> huh? Did you manage to play it? Did you? That's all for today, but if you'd like to check out more of our videos, take a look at the annotations on screen. Don't forget to subscribe and tell us how cool we are in the comments. <laughs> I might change that bit. Yeah.